mental health is one part of medical sciences where we have not seen as much progress. And that's where the research that I do finds its motivation. Can we find other ways of assessment that can improve the status quo in the way we both diagnose people with mental health risk and also the way we treat them? Welcome to this episode of Untangling the Web, a podcast of the Web Science Trust. I am Noshir Contractor, and I will be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in thought leaders to explore how the web is shaping society and how society in turn is shaping the web. Today, our guest is Munmun De Chowdhury, who is a professor of interactive computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where she leads the Social Dynamics and Wellbeing Lab. You just heard her talking about what motivates her innovative research in web science, which uses social media in order to understand and improve mental health. She adopts a highly interdisciplinary approach combining social computing, machine learning, and natural language analysis with insights and theories from the social, behavioral, and health sciences. She has been recognized with the 2021 ACMW, or the Association for Computing Machinery's Women Rising Star Award, the 2019 Complex Systems Society Junior Scientific Award, and over a dozen Best Paper and Honorable Mention Awards from the ACM and the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. Her work has also received extensive coverage in popular press, including the New York Times, NPR, and the BBC. Welcome, Munmun. Thank you very much for having me here. This is a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you. Your work focuses on how web science and the web more generally can help us to detect mental well-being issues, to mitigate those mental well-being issues, as well as to facilitate the treatment of these issues. I'm curious, what got you interested in looking and applying these computational approaches to study well-being? I loved math and science, but I also loved all of the other coursework that I did as a kid in social science and social studies and humanities. Until I was, I guess, late in my college years, I didn't know if there could be a possible way to connect and bridge the two. Like, how do you do STEM work that is connected to people in some way or the other? So thankfully, you know, I found myself around people who have been thinking about intersections of different disciplines for many years. And I think that reignited my passion to connect what I do as a computer scientist with something about people. I think the work that I do right now that kind of started about a decade back when I joined Microsoft Research as a postdoc. It was also around the time when I had lost my father to cancer. And that was a moment of introspection for me in my life about what does research mean for me? What is it that I can do? And how can I kind of take these ideas about connecting computer science with social science in a direction that would help me find meaning in that personal loss? That's how I started to connect my work with the health field, with the well-being field. And over a course of time, I found my home in mental health, broadly speaking. It's always curious how certain personal events in one's life can explain where we pivot in terms of our professional goals and aspirations. One of the things, obviously, that has motivated your work is the very high prevalence of mental health issues. The National Institutes of Mental Health 
has uh, identified that one in four adults or about 61 million Americans report to experiences that are challenges in a given year. What do you think about the ways in which we are currently handling these issues and how the web and social media approaches that you are taking might be able to address some of the obstacles we face? So, you know, the last hundred years or so have been incredible for medical science. We have made a lot of progress when it comes to illnesses such as infectious diseases. I mean, we are living through a pandemic right now. And, and, and if you just look at the pace of progress that we have done around it, it's, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. But mental health is one part of medical sciences where we have not seen as much progress. The methods that we currently use are pretty much still the methods that were prominent for the time of the First World War, which is when some of the earliest recognition was given to mental illness as illness. We saw some developments in the 60s and 70s with the invention of antidepressants and other drugs. But in terms of assessment and diagnosis, we are kind of still about 100 years old. The primary paradigm is self-reports from individuals. And Unlike other illnesses where we have objective tests for diagnosis or, or, for, or to treat people across the course of their journeys, we don't have it for mental health. And that's where the research that I do finds a, its motivation. Can we find other ways of assessment that can improve the status quo in the way we both diagnose people with mental health risk and also the way we treat them? And then one of the things that has also, I think, contributed to some of the challenges is a general stigmatization of mental health issues, at least until relatively recently in society. And that brings me to a bit of a conundrum. If people are not in general willing to talk about these issues in public because of fear of being stigmatized, how does looking at social media help? So... The beauty about social media is that we can use it the way we want to. One of the interesting developments that we have seen as social media platforms have become a part of our lives more and more is that people are finding people with the same lived experience who are probably going to understand the struggles that they're going with, who are probably not going to be judgmental of the experiences that they have faced in life and hopefully it would be less stigmatizing. So as much as there is the concern that social media platforms are performative, right? At the same time, we do see other uses where people are being candid and this provides us that window of opportunity to, to look at what struggles they're going through in terms of their mental health. And I imagine that in, with some irony, while you might be less inclined to talk about some of these issues with your close friends, you might actually be more comfortable talking to strangers. Sometimes we don't feel comfortable talking about our deepest struggles with people we know in the offline world because they might be our coworkers, they might be our bosses, and we don't want to disclose something that we feel we could be judged on. A lot of your work has also looked at how you could look at the passively shared data on social media to proactively detect one's risk of mental well-being challenges. What you are using as a detection strategy has to be 
somewhat more nuanced than just literally filtering social media postings for those who say they are depressed. Tell us a little bit more about how you go about sleuthing that kind of information about individuals. You're absolutely right that we are looking at more subtle signals, um, nuances in the writings of people, what type of words that they're using. So I'll give you the example. When we use a lot of first-person pronouns, such as I and me and myself, literature and psychology says that it shows an inward focus in terms of our attention. Sometimes experiences of mental health can be detached from the external surroundings, from the social contexts that people live in, uh, and that can manifest in this inward focused attention. But on the other hand, when we use words such as we and us, it shows that we find ourselves as part of a larger collective. Or when we use second person pronouns, it shows that we are interacting with another person. And these are really valuable cues when it comes to somebody's mental health. We also find that social interactions are very, very valuable signals. Am I having a lot of interactions with other people? Am I getting the support that I think I should be getting? So these kinds of signals that are less consciously regulated by people, those are the types of signals that we look for in our work. Now, the signals that you've talked about, in my mind, fall into two categories. One is looking at the content and doing a sentiment analysis, if you may, or parsing the words to decide what kinds of pronouns people are using. But the other sort of signals that you refer to are things like just the amount of activity you have, the amount of uh, uh, friends or the amount of responses that either you give to others or others give to what you're doing. The latter gets sometimes referred to as metadata, which is not looking at the content, but data about the interactions. Do you see any differences in the utility of and the efficacy of looking at the words themselves versus the data about the data? Yeah, so that uh, varies by the platform. So for instance, if you're looking at Twitter, normally the content words carry a lot more signal. And that might be because people are relatively more candid on Twitter compared to, let's say, a platform like Facebook. But on Facebook, we found that some of these metadata, some of these social interaction attributes, some of these network aspects are more valuable because for a lot of people, their presence on Facebook is also closely tied with their presence in the offline world. How do you reconcile that the signal that you get about a person from any one platform may be incomplete, inadequate? And are there ways of being able to cut across different platforms to be able to get a richer picture of someone's well-being? So I would answer that in two ways. The first part is whether any one platform or a couple of platforms is that uh, sufficient for us to get a more comprehensive understanding of their mental health. The reality is that right now, if you look at the state of the art in, in mental health diagnosis or treatment, none of those signals are being factored in. So now even signal from one or two platforms can be additional knowledge to the person themselves, to their caregivers, to their family or clinicians, whoever might be able to take actionable steps and use that information in helping the persons. It's some data, it's not all data, but I think it's still valuable data. 
still there is the question of we have our identities that are fragmented across different platforms. And that is more and more the case. So a lot of the work that I've been doing has been to go across platforms and, and think of these data in terms of their multimodal natures. So I absolutely agree with you that as much as information from a couple of platforms are valuable, nevertheless, there is still value to considering the fragmented nature of our identities. I know that this is initial work that you're doing, but are there any examples of insights that were different or modified because you were looking at multiple digital services providers? What we have definitely seen is not maybe as much of a contrast, but having data from one platform giving us context about data that we see in another platform. Some of our work recently was looking at physical activity data that is collected through smartphone use. And then we also had for these individuals, we had their Facebook data. So lining those two up was really insightful for us. So when we saw that the person's, let's say, heart rate increased at a certain point in time, we could go back and see what might have been going on on their Facebook. Maybe they reported a major life event. They reported something difficult that they were going through. So I think those are definitely some of the strengths of an approach that cross-cuts across different sources. Technically, how difficult is it today to be able to connect what someone said on uh, Facebook with some of what they report, say, on a fitness device? From a technical perspective, it's quite difficult because you need appropriate uh, infrastructures that can collect that data. Social media data is longitudinal. It is fairly sparse. It is largely text. Fitness data, we are talking about, you know, a very high sampling rate, dense data. And again, I mean, these are largely time series data, for instance. They're not text. There is the question of feasibility, right? Like finding enough people who are willing to share not just their data stream on one platform, but across multiple platforms, there is a, there is a question there as well in terms of ethical issues. Are, are you able to get information about individuals if they consent to sharing that information across platforms or do you have to deal with some of the providers themselves? It is a question that is getting harder by the day. There is some good reason why it is getting harder because I think discussions of privacy and ethics are finally getting the momentum that they deserve in the field of web science. But at the same time, there are these questions of multiple stakeholders uh, who have an interest in a data stream and have different policies, have different value systems around protecting or sharing the data. I think at the center of it are the creators of the data. They are the people who believe would benefit from you know this research. And so we have been doing a lot of work with mental health patients where they have been voluntarily sharing that data with us. And I feel that is probably the, the path forward for this kind of research. You mentioned that a lot of the data on the social media platforms uh, is largely text, for example. But I'm also thinking of some of the more recent platforms that have got a lot of activity like TikTok, like Clubhouse. TikTok is, you know, video based for the most part. And then Clubhouse is audio based for the most part. Have you had much success in being able to parse through video and audio as a way of detecting well-being? 
that's, I think, a direction where there could be a lot of research that happens going forward. Uh, we have done work uh, in the image space, uh, particularly on Instagram, which is an image-heavy platform. Yes. yes. Um, we have done some work on Tumblr, which is also kind of multi-model with images and videos and text. The next frontier are platforms like TikTok, or like Snapchat, where a lot of the young people are going and hanging out. A lot of young people now today rely on their social media presence for their own self-esteem and for their mental well-being. And there have been some efforts recently by some of the platforms to actually not publicize the number of likes a particular post gets or the number of shares a particular post gets so that people are not overly focused on building their self-esteem on the basis of that. Uh, do you think that those approaches will work? I think there is definitely something that needs to happen there. Social comparison theory has often been put as sort of the causes of the negative impacts of these platforms on, on people's mental health. I think the jury is still out whether these platforms are good or bad for people. At least the current understanding in the scholarly community is that it just depends upon how somebody uses the platform. Whether it's for good or for bad, I think the platforms do have a responsibility to consider that their platforms are being used by people sometimes for, for improving mental health, sometimes not for improving mental health, and how can we change the design of the platforms or the features. Have you looked at ways in which the research that you're doing and the tools that you're developing might be used not just by the person who is in need of help with mental well-being issues, but also tools that might be used by family members or a clinician. Can you talk a little bit about how the work you're doing might have audiences beyond the person, him or herself? My view of mental health is that it is not a solitary experience. It is an experience that is shaped and it impacts people around you. And therefore, if you're thinking about solutions that are grounded in these approaches and web science, it's important to also think about what would that technology look like for these other people in somebody's social ecology. So um, there are two stakeholders that we have engaged with quite extensively in the past few years. The first is the mental health clinicians. We have been working with Northwell Health. Um, they're a big health system based out of uh, New York State. And uh, we have been you know, recruiting and working with mental health patients, but also their clinicians. They are part of our research teams. We are kind of adopting a participatory approach there in building both the algorithms um, that use patients' data, but also what kind of technologies could be built on top of those algorithms that could help these clinicians in the treatment that they provide. And so the clinicians form a very important stakeholder in there who can benefit from these algorithms because they can get a fuller understanding of what might be happening to the individual. The other stakeholder kind of at a very different scale are public health stakeholders. And for the last two years, we have been working pretty closely with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or CDC in helping with their public health efforts on suicide prevention. Organizations like CDC are realizing that, you know, a lot of these conversations on mental health, on suicide are happening online. That is an entire piece that is missing from their public health work. So the work that we have been doing together is to extract meaningful information about how people are talking about suicide, what kind of stressors are being expressed by people, 
And that knowledge could provide evidence to organizations such as the CDC to figure out which communities might be in need of greater help than others. How do we allocate budget to assign mental health resources and how can we do that in real-time fashion? Based on your encounters working with these different stakeholders, could you comment on what you see as their receptivity? First of all, is a patient typically enthusiastic or concerned about sharing that this kind of information, giving consent to share this information with physicians? Are physicians excited about using these kinds of tools? And are the CDC policymakers enthusiastic about it? What's been your experience? In our interactions, what we have seen is clinicians are curious about how this will impact their decision-making. Questions of these power imbalances in, in, in therapeutic relationships. How will that impact their own relationship with the patient, right? That's an important one. And also there are questions of liability. I mean, when you have an algorithm that looks at social media data and makes an assessment of risk, what happens if it is correct? What happens if it's wrong? I mean, who takes the responsibility for that? So there are definitely the legal questions, the questions of infrastructural institutional support. So as a clinician, they might not feel comfortable to use such a technology if there is no support from their whole institution in, in allowing them to do that. Actually, from the patients, the people with the lived experience, we have seen the least skepticism among all stakeholders. And I think the reason is they see the value that this can bring maybe directly to their own lives or maybe the lives of other people like them. The question of stakeholders like CDC is a very interesting one. I have been pleasantly surprised how open-minded they have been to technology in my interactions with the researchers at CDC, I think there is a great deal of interest in taking some of these algorithms that glean insights from the web and somehow making them a part of their public health efforts. Well, we spend a lot of time talking about social media and websites that are there to be able to help individuals who are having these challenges. But there is also an undercurrent uh, a set of websites that are actually there to facilitate people engaging in, say, eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. What are your thoughts about those sites? We had so many aspirations uh, from the web in, in the 90s about how it's going to be liberating and, and it would democratize freedoms in, in many ways that have been lacking um, until that point. And a lot of that has been true, but at the same time, it will be foolish for us to not recognize all of the things that are terrible on these platforms and about these technologies. And, and the example that you cited is, is a great one in how these platforms, while they can be used for good purposes, they can also be used for harmful reasons. And we see that health misinformation is a huge problem and that we see in the context of mental health, we see in the context of uh, substance misuse, there is a lot of misinformation that goes on around. That is an aspect we desperately need to attend to when it comes to health more broadly and also more particularly mental and psychological well-being. As we begin to wrap up here, Mun Mun, can you talk a little bit about how the general work that you're doing on well-being applies also in the context of workplace experiences and, of course, including now remote work as well as perhaps hybrid work moving into the future? I mean, this was true even before the pandemic, that personal well-being and workplace well-being were deeply intertwined, right? 
but I think th this blurring has only been intensified. Uh, what constitutes work? What constitutes not work? Those lines, we are not able to manage them very well. If we think about the future of work, there are lots of interesting questions in that space that what does it mean to be able to understand workplace well-being now and what is the role of technology? The way we've been working now during the pandemic, a lot of our work, even within the organization, is using what some people call enterprise social media, things like Microsoft Teams, Slack, Zoom, uh, and so on. And that, of course, means that the same kind of information that you've been studying in, in general social media platforms is now amenable as data to help detect issues within the workplace itself. Uh, but now you have the tools and the data, potentially, to be able to train your eyes and your machine learning algorithms to look at interactions that are happening within the workplace. There is tremendous opportunity to look at some of these workplace behaviors, but at the same time, how far should we go so that it's still justified? And at what point does it become like big brother, right? Remote work opens up these possibilities of using these technologies to both get an understanding of our struggles and difficulties, but at the same time, can be deeply compromising uh, to one's privacy. Absolutely. Well, again, I want to thank you, Munwin, for taking time to talk to us about this really exciting area of research that you have been at the frontier of pushing in terms of uh, seeing how web science can help us deal with the general area of well-being and mental well-being in particular. Your approaches and techniques are truly interdisciplinary and the results and insights that you've shared with us today and the concerns that you've shared with us are uh, very reflective of the eclectic approaches that you use in terms of theories and, and models from a variety of different social science and computer science disciplines. So thank you again for taking time to talk with us today, Munwan. Thank you so much for having me and I enjoyed all of the questions on the conversation. Untangling the Web is a production of the Web Science Trust. This episode was edited by Molly Lubas. I am Noshir Contractor. You can find out more about our conversation today in the show notes. Thanks for listening.